Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we have the one, the only, Dr. John Demartini. Whenever you perceive that challenges you, I look for where the support is. And whenever you see the support, I look for the challenge and I balance them out. If you got prey without a predator, you'd be gluttonous fat, you'd lose fitness. If you got predator without prey, you become emaciated, starve and be out fitness. But you put the two together, they keep you in check and keep you fit. And you need both support and challenge to maximize growth and development. Maximum growth and development occurs in the border of order and chaos or support and challenge. So if we're infatuated, we got the parasympathetic active, our intuition is trying to point out the downsides and look at the challenges that we're blind to. And if we're challenged and we're supported by something, our intuition is trying to point the downsides out. You know, so it's it's constantly, it has a homeostatic mechanism to bring us into homeostasis, to bring us to authenticity, because our authentic self doesn't occur if we're resentful to something or infatuated with something. We exaggerate or minimize ourselves. Our, our physiology is doing everything it can and our psychology is doing everything it can to try to help us maximize our potential in life. And our maximized potential is in a balanced state. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp podcast, the best-selling author of four books, including Keto Flex. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Okay, today's episode, you are blessed, by the way. Thank you for being on this episode with me right now. I don't know where you are, what you're doing, but you are blessed because today's episode, look, we recorded over 300 episodes already for the show, but today's episode is one of probably the best interview that we've ever done on this show. Dr. John Martini is somebody who's transformed my lives. He's changed the lives of millions of people. It took me two and a half years to get him on the show. And I was looking forward to this episode so much. First time I actually got nervous for an episode. Actually, I shouldn't say first time. It's rare that I get nervous for an episode. I was nervous for this one and I did my research. Here's a quick little story I'll share with you because it wasn't recorded. But before we hit record, I was chatting with Dr. John Demartini and I asked him the question. I said, hey, Dr. John, how many interviews have you done in your lifetime? How many podcasts, interviews, etc.? And he said, oh, close to 10,000. And I laughed and I said, wow, that's a lot. And I told Dr. John, I said, well, the episode we're about to record is going to be one of the best interviews you've ever done, if not the best interview you've ever done. And he laughed and said, I love the attitude. 
So we hit record. <laughs> and literally, the first question uh, I asked him in the middle of the first question, my internet router dysfunctioned. <laughs> I just start seeing that little circle that's going around and around and I'm frozen, he's frozen. I'm wondering, is that my internet? Is it is it his internet? And I'm Ethernet in. I'm not even using Wi-Fi. And I rarely get any internet issues because of that. And I look back at the router and it's flashing red. And I start laughing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I just told Dr. John we're going to have the best interview ever. And I leave the interview. So I reset the router. I come back on a couple of minutes later. And thank God he was still on the StreamYard studio. <laughs> so we went right into the interview. We laughed about it. And this interview gave me goosebumps. He actually cried on this interview. It, it changed my life. I've listened to it already three times. And I'm going to listen to it again and again and again. And I recommend you listen to it again and again and again. I recommend you share with everybody you know, because this conversation will change your life for ever. I mean that. I'm not just hyping it up because I love the guy and I know I'm biased, but this was so amazing. What we spoke about, we started the conversation with a story that I brought up from several years ago when he was studying school or when he was in school studying, I should say, and how he went the extra mile with the books that were assigned to him in college. He would get 10 to 50 similar books on the topic. And something happened when he had all these books laid out. He was looking at something called histopathology. Histopathology is the study of disease in your tissues. He was specifically looking at cancer, liver cancer, and looking at different cell staining techniques. And something happened where he was starting to put some pieces together. And he was so inspired it brought him to tears. He knew that he knew that he knew he was onto something about cancer. And he's going to share what exactly he discovered. We also get into the history of humankind, the history of the world, and how disease and symptoms actually develop in the body. He believes every symptom, every disease is a result of an imbalance in your autonomic nervous system. P too much parasympathetic or too much sympathetic leads to your body showing you a symptom, trying to guide you back to homeostasis. What does that mean? Everything is in balance. You're going to learn that there's nothing negative, there's nothing positive, everything is just as is. We just assign things that are positive or negative. And if you could bring things into balance, you could heal your body. You could heal your relationships. You could thrive in life. You're going to hear the story of him struggling growing up as a child who was left-handed, dyslexic, couldn't read, failing his GED, and what changed and how love from his mother gave him the inspiration and conviction to change the world. And he's really changing the world. The man has read over 30,000 books in his lifetime. He's written several books that I recommend you go read or listen to them all. He's going to discuss why love and gratitude are two of the biggest healers you have in this world. He's going to share the difference between motivation and inspiration and why he believes motivation is a symptom that you're not living your life according to your highest values. And if you could determine your highest values and live your life according to your highest values, you're going to be healthier, 
happier. You're going to live a long life and you're going to make a big difference in this world. He says, anything you can't say thank you for is baggage and anything you are thankful for is fuel. He believes what you think about, what you think about, you bring about. I do too. We're going to get into a discussion about the telos and how the telos means the end in mind and how it helps you guide you to your highest values and how you could find your values in voids. And then I asked him the question because I've heard him say this before. Why do you call it St. COVID? Wait until you hear his answer. You're also going to hear at the end if he agreed with me with my original comment in the beginning about this being one of the best interviews he's ever done. Let's see if it was. He actually shares at the end whether it was or whether it was not. So stay tuned for that towards the end of the episode. I also ask him the question, who are three people that inspires him that he studies, that we should study, and what are three books? Look, he's read over 30,000 books. What are three must-read books? He actually said, it's only one book, volume one and two, and if you read this book, it gives you a PhD in life. You want to hear what that book is. I just bought it, and I'm going to read it as soon as it's delivered to me this week. So I can't wait to share him with you shortly. Before I do, I do want to take this opportunity to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from This Is Liz titled, Just What I Was Looking For. There's way too much information out there about keto. It's very hard to navigate and much like drinking from a fire hose. I love Ben's show. He is super clear and organized, gets straight to the point, and I learn something new with every episode. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Liz. You're so right about keto and just health in general. The challenge we have now is not not enough information, but too much information. So we are doing our best to provide clarity to you and give you bite-sized nuggets from the research and the science from the top minds in this space. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review yet, please do so. Maybe I'll read your review on the next episode. It really helps show grow. It really helps us reach more people and change lives. Before we bring on Dr. John Demartini, here's a quick message from today's sponsor. I always say structure trumps intention. You could have all the best intentions in the world, but if you don't have the structure in place, it's going to be very difficult to get the amazing keto and fasting results that you want. If you are on the go traveling and you don't want to think about What can you eat to help you feel satisfied and to help you continue getting results on your keto journey? For me, my structure when I'm on the go, when I'm traveling, and when I want to have something nearby that's a healthy snack, my go-to is Paleo Valley's Beef Sticks. Paleo Valley Beef Sticks are the perfect gut-friendly, clean protein snack for on the go. And if you have children, this is one of the best things to give your kids. These beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished by farmers right here in the United States. They contain naturally occurring probiotics, which helps increase the diversity in your gut. It contains organic spices. It has high concentrations of omega-3 fatty acids, elevated levels of conjugated linoleic acid, which we know is an antioxidant and also could enhance your body's ability to burn fat. It contains vitamins and minerals, elevated concentrations of glutathione, which is your body's master antioxidant, and it's good for the environment. They have flavors that range from original to garlic summer sausage, regular summer sausage, jalapeno, teriyaki, and they also have turkey sticks available as well. They taste so good. 
that I usually go through three or four, and I think I might set the record for eating almost 10 Paleo Valley beef sticks. Maybe somebody out there has eaten more than me in one sitting. You know, me and my fiance, Natasia, we're always fighting over these beef sticks in our house. We go into the pantry and I hear her unwrapping it and I'm like, hey, are you eating one of my beef sticks? <laughs> they are delicious. And since you are a avid listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive deal for you to get 15% off your entire order of Paleo Valley products. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That is KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. Okay, let's get into this life-changing conversation with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. John Demartini is a polymath and a world-renowned human behavior expert. He has over four decades of research across multiple disciplines. His work has been described by students as the most comprehensive body of work, an extensive library of wisdom, and wisdom of the highest and most valuable order. Dr. Demartini's mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become a master of your own life and destiny. He's an internationally published author, a global educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. His education curriculum ranges from personal growth seminars to corporate empowerment programs. He shares life, business, financial, relationship, and leadership empowerment strategies and empowerment tools that have stood the test of time. He's been featured on Fox News, Sky News, Larry King, The Oprah Network, The Secret, that amazing movie, The Secret, Entrepreneur Magazine, Huffington Post. And he's been voted as the IAOTP Top Human Behavioral Specialist of the Year. He has studied over 30,000 books across all the defined academic disciplines and has synthesized the wisdom of the ages, which he shares online and on stage to over 100 countries. His presentations, whether keynotes, seminars, or workshops, leave clients with insights into their behavior and the keys to completely transform their lives. Well, let's transform your life right now with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. John Demartini, thank you so much for joining me on the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been known to have said the quality of your life is based off of the uh, quality of the questions you ask. So with that being said, I believe the quality of an interview is based off the quality of the questions asked. And here's where I want to start the conversation with you. Back when you were in school, you were studying histopathology, which is the disease of tissues in the body. And you were given a textbook, and you went above and beyond that and got 10 to 50 additional textbooks on the topic to really synthesize the information you were learning at that time. And you were in an apartment, had all these books laid out in front of you, studying specifically liver cancer and the cell staining techniques you were observing. And after that, you were brought to tears. Something inspired you where you knew that you were onto something. What happened at that moment? Well, it's interesting when you say that, it almost brought tears to my eyes just remembering that moment. I remember that exact moment. I was comparing embryology text, histopathology text, 
and pathology text. And I noticed that the liver cancer cell was very similar to an embryonic cell. It's a regressed cell. And the staining techniques showed a very similarity in the nuclei of the cell. And I also looked at cirrhosis of the liver and hepatitis. And I noticed that their staining techniques showed, again, a different stage of embryological development. And the, an idea popped in my head, which is now more mainstream, but at the time seemed to be uh, a little bit of a jump. You were actually made fun of, right? They thought you were just on, uh, out on your adventures, right? Well, a lot of my students uh, that I was in, colleagues didn't understand it. I had the opportunity to speak at a significant oncology conference when I was 24 years old on my model, on my wow. uh, evolutionary and embryological model of cancer. I didn't get laughed at there. I got intrigued uh, responses there. It just, I was just shocked and surprised that some of the literature that I had read and devoured was not commonly read by the oncologists, even though they were specialists in it. For some reason, when I asked them, two Nobel Prize winning pieces of work on oncology, nobody knew. I was shocked. It was almost like um, what, was, what was available and what was being taught seemed to have a filter. And it seemed like the pharmaceutical and radiographic and surgical approaches were filtering out some of the other alternative ways of looking at it. Now, Paul Davies and Lineweaver and others have come to a very similar model in 2013. And so the model that I, I was developing at the time turned out to be not so far-fetched to uh, some people later on. So I was, I think, ahead of the times at the time. You know, you, you first you get kind of laughed at and people don't understand it, but later on people go, okay, now the data is supporting it. But it was just an observation. And there was a number of observations working with cancer patients at the time that on behavior. And for some reason, people didn't believe that behavior or psychology was having an impact on these type of conditions. But you'd have a hard time convincing me of that. I've certainly seen hundreds of cases where psychology does have an impact on the progression and regression of these conditions. So I've held my ground. And, uh, you know, sometimes people don't appreciate that. and Some people do. Uh, but I don't really care. I, that's not their opinions aren't what matter to me. What matters is the data that I see in front of me. How do you go from somebody as a young boy, uh, you know, a teenager, left-handed, dyslexic kid? You, you said who got strychnine poisoning in Hawaii. You were hitchhiking. You made, you found your way in Hawaii. You were kind of trying to figure things out back then. Didn't really have a purpose, I, I believe. And then you got your act together. But what happened with a gentleman you met? in Hawaii? What happened that conversation with that gentleman? Well, I, the night that I met Paul Bragg at the Sunset Recreation Hall in the North Shore of Oahu, near Pupukea, uh, Heights Road, one man in one hour with one presentation, one message, really got to me. I mean, he just, his presentation really made me think, wow, I could possibly overcome my learning problems and speaking problems and someday become intelligent. I was a high school dropout. I was living in a tent at the time. Uh, I was a surf rat, <laughs> long-haired hippie surfer kid. And um, I, that night, I, in this little imagery, God admitted meditation thing that he gave us, 
I saw a vision of me learning how to speak, articulate, and be able to share something intelligent with people. It probably was a dissociative identity disorder at the time. I was probably living <laughs> fantasy, but it but it was so true and real in my mind. It was so tear jerking in that moment that I just felt like this is something I, that I'm to pursue. And I went on a journey. My dream, you know, 49 plus years later, almost 50 years later, I'm here. I am. So I can't complain. <laughs> I never gave yeah. up on the dream. I had a I had a rough moment there at age 18. Almost gave up. But I had a, a turning point with my was something my mom said, and I just made myself determined and was not going to let anything stop me from this learning how to read and write and speak properly. What did your mom tell you when you were 18? Well, I, I came back from Hawaii, flew to Los Angeles, hitchhiked back to Texas. My parents suggested I take a GED high school equivalency test. I went to the University of Houston and sat in this room and closed my eyes. If I read what I read, if I understood it, I would try to answer it. If I didn't know, I would close my eyes and I would just fill in a dot with a guess, an intuition. And miraculously, I passed this, this test. I had me a high school degree equivalent. I never finished high school. And when I got that, I, was, I felt like there was something higher power working inside my life somehow that was going to get me to, to somehow do this dream. And then I went on to try to go to college and I, my first class, first test I ever took, I just failed. I got a 27 instead of 72. And when I got the, the test scored, I thought the same thing was going to happen as that, that GED test. I thought I was going to do well. And when I got on 27 and there was a massive gap, like 50 point difference between me and anybody else, I thought, whoa. And my first grade teacher who whispered to me uh, in my head and who said in front of my parents, I'm afraid your son is never going to be able to read or write or communicate, never amount to thing, never go very far in life because he can't read, he can't pronounce, he can't spell properly, he can't, he's just not functioning. That came up in my head and I really was in a low moment. And I remember driving back from this college crying on the way home and I curled up in a fetal position underneath a Bible stand that my mom had in the in the bedroom, not the bedroom, but the living room. And she came home from shopping, my mom, and she said, what happened, son? What's wrong? She hadn't seen me crying like that since I was young. And I said, I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate. Never mount a thing, never go very far in life. I guess I'm going to have to go back and ride big waves. And she just froze. Then she did something that only a mom could do. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said to me, she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream, whether you ride big waves and go back to North Shore, or you return to the streets and panhandle as a bum like you've done, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. And when she did that, I couldn't have got a more magnificent thing. My hand went into a fist when she said that. And it was a determination feeling. And I looked up and I saw the vision that I saw the night I met Paul Bragg of me speaking in front of a million people. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and learning and studying. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me now, not even myself. I got up and I hugged my mom and I went into my room 
and I um, got a Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary out, and um, I made a commitment to memorize 30 words a day to grow my vocabulary. And my mom would test me on 30 words to spelling, pronunciation, meaning, and put it in a sentence. And I spent a lot of work on getting 30 words a day into my brain until I was, you know, after a while, that's 10,000 words in a year. My vocabulary grew enormously, and I started passing school and excelling. And then I just lived in front of books. I, I just could not stop uh, reading 18 to 20 hours a day. That was my... Wow. It, was, it became a, a relentless pursuit of that objective. And I'm so grateful for my mom that day because I probably would have not had that turnaround and probably would have just gone back and been a great surfer. I mean, I was decent surfing. I'd made it in surf magazine, surf movies kind of thing. I would have probably been a great surfer, but academia was not real. I didn't, I had to ask kids to read for me when I was a teenager. What an amazing story. For myself, John, Dr. Martin, Martini. back in 2008, I was obese, physically obese, mentally obese, uh, suicidal, later to give up on life. And every time I explored suicide, I kept thinking about my mother and all the things she would have to deal with if I took my life. So it was like a six to seven month cycle of looking for ways to end my life, thinking about my mom stopping myself. And I got out of that space. And now I believe I'm living on purpose with my, I know I'm living on purpose with my purpose. So my mom saved my life, similar to the way she spoke life into you. The Paul Bragg in Hawaii, you said in one hour with one lecture, one gentleman changed your life forever. Uh, I kind of feel that way about you. I, I saw you speak in Coral Gables, Florida. I'm in Miami uh, five or six years ago. And then you shared that story about Paul Bragg. And you shared that he gave you an affirmation. I am a genius and I apply my wisdom. And you've said that affirmation every single day since. And when I heard you say that, I thought, I'm going to say that affirmation every single day since I just, you know, discovered your work and saw you in person. So I've been saying it every single day since I saw you. And it's changed my life. And your work has changed my life. So what Paul did for you, you did for me in, in, a, in about a two-hour lecture, Dr. Martini. Well, that that's meaningful to hear. The night I met him, I said, someday I'm going to find a 17-year-old young man and pass the torch to because I was 17 when he met me, when I'm his age. I'm not quite his age, but anytime I hear a story of somebody like yourself that, you know, carried on the torch, if you will, that's deeply meaningful to me. But yeah, that affirmation was out of my mind this morning. I don't get out of bed without that little statement. That's a daily ritual. Some people say affirmations don't work. It's a, it's a woo-woo. What, what would you say to those individuals who really believe that? Well, the word affirmation means a condition of firmness in one's mind. And making a fluffy statement that is superficial, that is polarized, I'm always happy, never sad, is delusional. But making a statement that is like a checkup from the neck up and a reminder of how to perceive, decide, or act in life has a lot of wisdom. It's like a checklist. You wouldn't want a, a flight pilot to take off without a checklist. So if I said to myself, whether I am supported or challenged, whether I'm praised or reprimanded, whether I'm acknowledged or disacknowledged, I know that both of them, both sides are homing me in on my most authentic self. And no matter what I perceive, if I ask a new set of questions, it's guiding me to see how it's on the way, not in the way. 
that I can make statements on how to perceive life and act in life that are prioritized wise actions. And those statements reminding me are like reading great quotes by great minds. And putting that in front of your mind every day is very valuable. So peppy little affirmations that are all positive thinking and one-sided can be delusional. But a deeply meaningful thing that is really aligned with what you value most, that is really a wise action to be reminded of, I think has value. I do too. I do too. When your mom spoke life to you, meaning she she gave you that that courage that it doesn't matter what you do, she's going to love you regardless. You clenched your fists and you said you were determined, right? What is the difference between that moment providing you inspiration versus people who are getting motivated? You call motivation a symptom. So I would love for you to really share why there's a difference between being motivated and being inspired. Yeah. Every human being lives moment by moment by a set of priorities, set of values, things that are most to least important in their life. Whenever they're doing something that's extremely high on their values, the very highest, particularly, they're spontaneously inspired from within intrinsically to act. It's like a boy doing his video games. He doesn't need to be a reminder or motivated to do his video games. But you may have to motivate him to do his chores, his homework, and do his cleaning his room. So anything that's low on your value, you need motivation for extrinsically. So anything that needs extrinsic motivation is not really important to you. You may say it is, but that's not what matters is what your life demonstrates. So identifying what's really, truly valuable to you, what's truly intrinsically calling to do that you feel spontaneous you want to do, and having somebody state something or say something that's aligned to that is powerful. But somebody trying to motivate you to do something that's low in your values, if somebody said you should be a good cook, I would probably just delete it in seconds. Or you ought to be a driver. I haven't driven a car in 32 years almost. And I haven't cooked since I was 24. I learned a long time ago that you want to fill your day with the things that are most inspiring to you and delegate everything else. So I delegate everything other than teach, research, write, travel. Outside Mm -hmm. that, I don't do it. I have specialists to do those things. So if you're doing something that's really high in your value and somebody says something that's congruent with that, you'll take it on board and you'll excel with it. But if somebody tries to impose on you, which people are constantly doing around you, imposing their values onto you that may be lower on your values, you take it with a grain of salt, as they say, and you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. take actions on it. And if you try to subordinate to those individuals and try to live in those values, you'll end up needing motivation and reminding to do it. You'll need rewarded to do it or a punishment if you don't. You'll need Skinner or Pavlovian conditional reflexes in order to get you to move. I'm interested in helping people find out what they're intrinsically driven to do that is deeply meaningful. The same as Aristotle wanted to know what he called the telos, the, the, the aim and chief aim or the end in mind. When I find that and I help people get that, they don't need to be motivated. I don't need motivation to do what I love doing, which is teaching and researching and writing. But I would need motivation to do something below that. But I don't even allow myself to do it. I delegate that. I hire people to take care of anything I'm not inspired by. And that's a lot of liberty when you get that. Mm, So, so powerful. My mentor, his name is Dr. Daniel Pompa, is also a chiropractor. He's also dyslexic, by the way. 
we do uh, weekly masterminds with the doctors that I work with. So this past Tuesday, we were on a call. We were talking about a specific topic, health-related. But then we were talking about our goals for the new year. We were talking about living a life uh, incongruent with your highest values. And then he actually mentioned you, Dr. Demartini. He said, if you look at Dr. John Demartini, the man hasn't driven a car in 30 years. Like He doesn't do the things that is not on his high on his list. So he said, if you find yourself complaining and procrastinating, it's a sign that it's probably not high on your values and you probably should, shouldn't do it or delegate it to your point. Every time I find myself doing things that I'm not told to do, for example, this interview, like I studied deep for this interview and I always study for my guests, but I went deep and nobody was telling me to do it. I was so inspired because I love your work. I was so looking forward to the conversation. If I was interviewing somebody that I really didn't want to have a conversation with, I would have to been motivated to do so, right? It's a sign that there's a, a misalignment there. So as the new year comes about, as this podcast is going to be released close to the new year, I think it's important for those listening and watching to find out what's important to you. What are your highest values? Go purchase the book, A Values Factor by Dr. John Demartini, which I did several years ago. But can you also help to... Because you talk about finding your values in voids. How could somebody find a value in a void? What does that even mean? That's a great question. Let's say that you're in, uh, you meet somebody, you run into somebody, and you look up and infatuate with them a bit. And you put them on a pedestal. And that could be that you're infatuated with their intelligence, infatuated with their achievements, uh, business, their wealth, their relationship stability, their social influence, their physical fitness, or maybe their spiritual awareness. Anytime you exaggerate them, you'll minimize you. And or you might meet somebody and you look down on them. And you might minimize them and exaggerate you. In the first case, you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. In the second case, you're too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. But the truth is, you can't see what you see in them without it having a place in you, but you're just too proud or too humble to admit it. And I've proven that over thousands and thousands of cases that what you resent in other people is reminding you of something you feel ashamed of in yourself. And it's reminding you of it. That's why you're wanting to avoid them, but you're too proud to admit it. And the same thing in reverse on admiration. So those disowned parts, those dismembered parts, those uh, too humble to or proud to admit parts are voids. They're voids of emptiness as a result of judgment. And every time we judge, we create an emptiness. Empedocles, the Greek philosopher, said that there's love and strife. Strife was another name for judgment. And love, we have fulfillment. But in judgment, we have emptiness. No way you can judge somebody and feel whole. Because you're, you're, you're literally trying to get rid of a part of yourself in this case. Or trying to be gain some part of yourself. But in actuality, nothing's missing in you. Nothing's missing you. You just think it is. It's something that you're unaware of. You're unconscious of. Because when you're infatuated, you're unconscious of their downsides and you're unconscious of your upsides. When you're resentful to somebody, you're unconscious of their upsides and you're unconscious of your downsides. When you're fully conscious, you see nothing missing. And you're now seeing both sides. And you level the playing field. You don't put people on pedestals or pits. You put them in your heart. When you do, you have mm -hmm. equanimity within you. You're not proud or shame, which is false personas. You now have yourself, authentic self, and you have equity between you and them. 
And then you have reflective awareness where you have the maximum potential to have sustainable fair exchange reactions and transactions. As a result of it, you have the most fulfillment life and the most fulfilled life because the repercussions of having fair exchange with people is amazing in all areas of life. So those voids coming from judgments leave us empty and want to be fulfilled. And they're non-homeostatic. They, they actually create illness in our body. And the, the, our intuition and our physiological homeostasis, our internal milieu, as Claude Bernard would describe, is constantly trying to reintegrate those and help us be have reflective awareness so we have authenticity, so we can maximize our potential. So we are capable of doing extraordinary things when we're authentic. And the magnificence of who we authentically are is far greater than any fantasies about who we're supposed to be or should be when we exaggerate or minimize ourselves. So our physiology is trying to help us fulfill our lives and live by our highest value. And at our highest value, we're most objective, most neutral, and therefore least judging. And that's why when we live by our highest priority, we have the most fulfillment in life. We have the least emptiness from judgments that we're and we're less likely to be in our amygdala, avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, avoiding predators, seeking prey, avoiding resentment, seeking infatuations, which are the distractions from being present with the power of our purpose in life. Mm. I love what you just shared. Human beings, you said human beings and biological organisms grow most at the border of support and challenge. So that's what you're kind of referencing here, bringing things to balance. The law of polarity, if you will, so for every positive, there's a negative, left, right, et cetera. So let's relate that to COVID. You call it Saint COVID. I want to know, first of all, why you call it Saint COVID. And then those who are living through this in the last year and a half, two years, who feel like it's all negative, 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 how can we look at the other side and bring this to balance for them? Well, John Milton, the poet says that we can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. It's all based on our perceptions, our decisions and actions. I don't believe that there is anything in the universe that's inherently good or evil or positive or negative. I think it's neutral until somebody with a narrowed mind and a biased, subjective biased perception, confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias, distort what their experience that they're receiving through their senses and put it through their filters and then make it good or bad. Because we've, we've all had events that we thought were terrible, and then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, oh, thank, I'm so thankful that happened. Or you've had this event you think is terrific, and you think, oh, day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, you go, hmm, what a challenge. You buy a new house, you think it's the greatest thing, and all of a sudden you go, oh, wow, this freaking house is driving me crazy. So these illusions of one-sidedness are incomplete awarenesses, but they're moral hypocrisies that we get inundated by, by society's ideas, mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, you know, conventions, traditions, mores, but they're not real. So to me, when COVID came along, the moment it happened, I was, I just flown in from Japan filming a movie there and I just got into Los Angeles and when it hit, right, when they shut us down and I was, I had three programs or four programs that week that I was going to be doing presentations for. I went, okay, can't do those. So plan B, Zoom. We went on Zoom literally within 24 hours and opportunity came about. And then I sent out a, uh, an email to my database and I said, everybody write down what are the blessings and the upsides of COVID and send it in. And I got 17,000 upsides sent. 
all these people said, I'm now closer to my family. I'm, I'm now getting learned technology. I'm uh, getting to take time to reflect and look at what I really like instead of just the routines. I mean, if people started listing it, I'm connecting with people and my sense of humor has gone up because I'm now having to make fun out of crazy things around my life. You know, I'm, I'm learning how to interact with my children. I, I'm eating differently. I'm now doing yoga. I mean, it went on and on and on. But 7,000 things came in. And I started sharing that with people on the live presentations. And you can choose to see the downside. You can choose to see the upside. You can be a pessimist or an optimist. I choose to see both sides. I don't want to be polarized and have things infatuate or resent things. I'd rather just be poised and be mindful of all parts of it. I'm not a nice person or a mean person or a kind person or a cruel person. I certainly have all those behaviors at different times. I'm just a human being with all of them. And life is that way. So I would immediately ask people, what's the upsides if they came in with downsides? And if they came in with upsides, I said, what's the downsides? I would neutralize them out so they would see both sides. Because if you're infatuated with things, you're blind to the downsides. If you're resentful to things, you're blind to the upsides. And if you're comparing mm -hmm. your current reality, which a lot of people were doing, and going, well, the way it is isn't matching the way it used to be or isn't matching the way I fantasize. Well, if you're comparing your current reality to the past or future and not being present and finding out how it serves you, you're missing out on the moment of the magnificence of what it can be doing. And when you, you look magnificently, you find it's, I call it St. COVID. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden your cells produce energy. So you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I mentioned before we hit record that my friend Curtis Harrier, who's a student of yours, so a couple of years ago, probably three years ago, I was having a lot of lower back pain. And I would do like chiropractic, I would do foam rolling, I would do different things, but it would not go away for three straight weeks. It was not go away. It was just this constant lower back pain. So I texted Curtis and I'm like, hey, what does Dr. John Martini say about lower back pain? And he said, you know, finances, you know, you, you're thinking about finances, financial issues. At that time, 
it wasn't that. I wasn't having any financial issues. Or you're complaining about something. So what are you complaining about most? He asked me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm constantly complaining about doing all the work for my business and you know, not delegating and how they can't do it like me. So he said, write down 50 positives, you know, benefits to me doing everything in my business and then 50 negatives and just come back to me tomorrow, right? Text me tomorrow. So I went on my rooftop here in my building and I wrote down 50 positives, 50 negatives. Within 24 hours, I woke up the next morning, the back pain was gone. <laughs> I texted him. I'm like, thank you. Everything is back to balance. So our, that's just a small example, but I'm sure you've seen that with like even extreme things like, like cancer. Could you share maybe some stories about how bringing things into balance heals physical ailments? Yeah, you, you really can't have a balanced physiology with an imbalanced perception. You have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic side, you might say, or or portions of the autonomic nervous system, sometimes called the involuntary nervous system. The sympathetic is for fight or flight, typically associated. And the other one is for rest and digest or breed and, and feed. And um, when you perceive things that support your values, the parasympathetic comes online. When you perceive things that challenge your values, the, the sympathetic comes online. One is for prey, anabolic, eating, reduction, alkalinity. And the other is for being eaten, catabolic, oxidation, and um, you know different uh, acidity. So these are two polarities that are of the autonomics based on perceptions. If you bring those into perfect balance, your heart rate variability is increased, your resilience and adaptability increases, your cardiovascular quotient uh, is improved, your immune system is stabilized and improved. I mean, it just goes on and on. Your breathing rate is, is lowered. Your, your physiology goes back into homeostasis. So whatever you perceive that challenges you, I look for where the support is. And whatever you see the support, I look for the challenge and I balance them out. If you got prey without a predator, you'd be gluttonous, fat, you'd lose fitness. If you got predator without prey, you become emaciated, starve, and be out fitness. But you put the two together, they keep you in check and keep you fit. And you need both support and challenge to maximize growth and development. And this is known, this is not new. I mean, we can st study this in biology that maximum growth and development occurs at the border of order and chaos or support and challenge. So this is just basic physiology, it's nothing new. Claude Bernard wrote about it in his internal milieu and Walter Cannon wrote about it in his wisdom of the body text and showed how important that homeostasis is. And our intuition is constantly trying to make us aware of the unconscious parts. So if we're infatuated and we got the parasympathetic active, our intuition is trying to point out the downsides and look at the challenges that we're blind to. And this is meditating on the evils as the Stoics described. And if we're challenged and we're supported by something, our intuition is trying to point the downsides out. You know, so it's it's constantly it has a homeostatic mechanism to bring us into homeostasis, to bring us to authenticity. Because our authentic self doesn't occur if we're resentful to something or infatuated with something. We exaggerate or minimize ourselves. And that's not where we're, our power is. So our, our physiology is doing everything it can and our psychology is doing everything it can to try to help us maximize our potential in life. And our maximized potential is in a balanced state. It's not mm. rocket science. And our physiology stops putting symptoms in our phase to try to get us back to that balance. Symptoms are feedbacks if they're interpreted properly to guide us back to balance. If a person overeats, for instance, they have ghrelin, it's, it's, it's running wild, right? 
and we're overeating. And then we wake up the next morning with puffy eyes and cramps and gas and bloat and, and sniffles or whatever, because we just pigged out the night before. Well, most people think, well, you go to the doctor and you go and get an antacid and an anti-flatulent and anti-stomach virus thing and antihistamine and you go and they get rid of the symptoms and then you keep picking out. That's the most idiotic approach to healthcare as far as I'm concerned you could follow. Your body is creating its symptoms to guide you on how to authentically live and it's letting you know when you excessively did a behavior. And when you actually listen to it and know how to interpret it, it guides you right back into homeostasis and you feel your maximum potential. Your body is designed to give you maximum potential. And people ignore it because of things they read, external environment. In chiropractic, we used to say the educated intelligence interferes with the innate and inborn wisdom of the body. We learn things that ain't so. Paul Dirac said in the Nobel Prize writings, he said, he says, it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. We're having to, and Plato said we have to unlearn stuff to get to actual the truth sometimes, unlearn our distortions. So good. Yeah, Alvin Toffler said the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn, to your point. I love the chiropractic philosophy. I'm not a chiropractor, but I, I, I work with a lot of them. And I just love the idea that there's an innate intelligence within the cells. I believe in God. I believe God put it there. And you talk about this innate intelligence and how it humbles you when you begin to study it and how it's in the membrane, it's in the receptor sites, it's in the tissues. I would love for you to share about this innate intelligence so those listening or watching could understand how amazing their, their body is. I always say what Les Brown said, you are a masterpiece because you were a piece of the master. And when you could really understand how incredible this human body is, I believe it takes you from being in fear to being empowered. So could you share a little bit more about this innate intelligence? Yeah, I wrote a, a, a thousand page, two volume text on the origin of life many years ago. And I was- The mysteries of the living cell, is that what it is? The mysteries of the living cell, exactly. And I- uh, I was fascinated by redox reactions and neurochemistry and physiology. And I mean, I've been studying that. I taught physiology and neurology many years ago. But in the pursuit of this, I asked a simple question, you know, because this is the question that's been asked by biologists and, you know, exobiologists, and you name it. Where does life originate? How does it originate? That's a great question. We got a, we got a cell out there. Where did it originate? How did it come about? This is what I tried to tackle. Well, there's all kinds of theories. There's a geo model that it starts right here on the earth and it starts from biomolecules and you had, you know, lightning in the right environment to the, the soup of primordial organic compounds. Da, 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 da. Of course, I worked with Dr. Cox when I was in my early 20s trying to create organic molecules and we did all kinds of experiments, but we never created a cell. We created you know, amino acids, we created fatty acids, we created things like that, but we never created a cell that was alive that reproduced. But yet 3.9 to 4.4 billion years ago, now there's speculation to 4.4 billion years, and the earth is 4.6 maybe uh, billion years. So within 200 million years, we had a cell on this, this planet. In the prokaryotic cell, even though it's much simpler than the eukaryotic cell that adds a nucleus, it still has a gene expression, it still has compartmentalization, it still has 
you know, intelligent movements and actions, and it goes and seeks things that it wants as food and gets rid of waste, and it it has uh, cytoarchitectural structures that are are so complex that you know you'd have to be humbled. No scientist can create that so far. Now, maybe in a thousand years from now we might, but I haven't seen anything in the last fifty years. I've been studying this almost almost fifty years. I haven't seen anybody get really closer to that really. But somehow it knows how to do that. And these molecules, even though there may be an involvement over time, it's still, going back to the first cell, that's still more complex than all the Nobel Prize winning physiologists could figure today. But yet that was around 3.9 billion years, 4.4 billion years ago. They were already there. So if evolution was creating that, and our intelligence right now, all our PhDs and biochemists and everything else, they can't figure them out, put them all together. They can't figure out how it was four billion years ago, somehow there was an intelligence of, of organic molecular integration that was going on there. Well, okay, well, it's some sort of self-organizing system. That's a nice cop-out, really, in my opinion. It's a cop-out, and it's and it's some sort of ecopoiesis, self-organizing ideals. Okay, well, that's chaos theory trying to solve that. But even so, then we we even go to genes and say, well, they're programmed. Well, what's programming that? How did that get programmed? And we, we get almost, we try to avoid teleology. We try to avoid almost a mystical uh, approach to it, but we keep going back down to that boundary of physics and metaphysics. Now, some days people have promissory materialism thinking that they're going to eventually solve that. And it's going to be solved. And But they've been talking about that. I've been doing it almost 50 years. And I, I haven't seen them get really that much closer to it. We go down to quantum levels. We start looking at that. Freeman Dyson believed that him at the quantum level, and I had a conversation with him before he died. He believed at the quantum level that, that these quantum particles are making decisions, and panpsychism is reemerging from some of the greatest minds on the planet. And there may be some sort of thing. And there's a Luc uh, Montague, whatever there in, in France, is doing research on fields creating DNA organizations. And maybe there's life fields uh, there, which has been discussed over the centuries. So these are all different things that are on the edge that materialist and atheist and mechanistic and monist do not comprehend or want to believe, but are still they can't solve it. And until they can solve it and come up with an alternative plan that's always going to be sitting there as an alternative, and they're going to have debates about it. Well, I'm not going to take a side to it. I believe that we want to do both and study both areas, but I don't think they've been able to get rid of vitalism yet. Even though they got mm -hmm. a mechanistic model, they still haven't gotten rid of complete vitalism yet. And the mysteries of the living cell are my attempt to try to elaborate on both sides of the camps, to, to sit down and discuss both sides of that so they can put it at a hopefully a deeper level. But I'm a firm believer that there's an, an, an innate intelligence, of an inborn intelligence in nature. I think we're on the verge of it when we start talking about virtual photons and virtual particles that are coming out of the uncertainty at the quantum level, we're maybe we're getting closer to it. That's a nicer way of doing it. But another decade or 10 decades from now, we might be at a, another deeper level, a Planck level, a quantum level that's even deeper, and we'll still probably not solve it. But I think that, but to, to acknowledge that there's an intelligence universe, I think even Einstein said, it's enough for me on a daily basis to go and, and probe into the mysteries that permeate the universe. Uh, he believed that there was a, a not an anthropomorphic deity that's punishing, rewarding like some animal-based moralities and hypocrisies promote, 
but a a deep mystical appreciation of an order of the universe that's inherent sitting in there, as David Bohm would describe. So I'm a believer that there's an intelligence in the universe, and I think that our job is to go probing into the mysteries of that. And I don't think that scientists would probe for 30, 40, 50, or 60 years and get a Nobel Prize if they didn't believe there was a rational order in the universe. They, they wouldn't even waste their time on science if it wasn't there. There had to be some deterministic component of a, of a rational order, or there wouldn't be a pursuit of science. So even though this, the scientists are sometimes atheistic and mechanistic and materialistic, their even pursuit is subtly goes beyond that. And I'm a firm believer that whatever we know, there's always a mystery and we're going to keep expanding that. But I think some scientists have the, the boldness to go out and, and allow that to be. You know, Mishukaku is a good example of, of he's out there elaborating and putting that, that boundary between that vital and mechanistic side. He puts it together. I think that they're, they're still going to be going down dead ends until they put the two together. That's why I think Einstein said science without religion, religion out science is lame and blind. I think they both need to be there. Oh, so fascinating. Uh, incredible. I love the way you just explained that. That book, The Mysteries of the Living Cell, I couldn't find it. I know you didn't release it to the public. So how could somebody like me, I don't know if I can, how could we get access to yeah, this that, book? That program was, is a, a five-day program for mainly advanced students. Um, that so it was I, a workshop? It's a workshop for five Got days. It elaborating on in, in, on a very in-depth level the cell and the origins of it and how it may have come about and my models on it and all the different theories that scientists in the spectrum from you know spiritual all the way to very cutting-edge scientists are, are perceiving i try to put the whole mix together so you get an overview and then i try to summarize my interpretation of that information yeah it's it's it was an exploration so at least we as students can appreciate the magnificence of life. We take it for granted, but it's it's a pretty amazing thing. If you go and study the life of the cell, that little video that's out there, life of the cell, and uh, and go watch it, somebody's done a magnificent job at depicting what goes on inside the cell. And there's no way you're going to look at that without being humbled, because it, to think that that's a random thermodynamic uh, phenomenon, to me, is just ludicrous. I've never been satisfied with that model. Yeah, anytime I study specifically the, the cell membrane, uh, the, the lipid bilayer on the cells, I, I'm, I'm humbled. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the way it communicates with the DNA, how it allows good things in, bad things out. Just, to, just studying the cell membrane alone puts me in awe every single time. You have a great audio. It's on your website. Your website is drdmartini.com, correct? Yeah. yeah. So drdmartini.com, we'll put it down below. There's a, you have a whole bunch of audios there, but there's one that I'm thinking about to really understand this conversation even deeper, the healing mind. You talk about what we're talking about here, but even deeper. So I recommend we'll put a link down below in the podcast notes. Everybody go listen to that and go download all of the audios on your website. My fiance, Natasha, was asking me, what do you want for Christmas? Because I already got her Christmas gift. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And then I was on your website yesterday, Dr. John, and I saw your full library of all your audios. And I'm like, that's what I want. Because <laughs> every day I'll listen to one or two, but I want the whole library. I can't get enough of your information. So we'll put that down below. We have about a few minutes left. So I, I want to make sure I get to this question. I believe vitamin G is the strongest vitamin in this world, which is gratitude. And I know that you're a big believer in gratitude and love. You said anything you can't say thank you about is baggage and anything you are thankful for is fuel. 
how did you develop a gratitude practice? Uh, with, you know, I know it stemmed from the conversation with your mom, but how did that lead to such uh, an understanding of what love and gratitude does inside of the human body? It's a long journey. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. I had my birthday on Thanksgiving a few, you know, two weeks ago. So Happy I, birthday. I was born on that one. So that had to do it, I think. My mom said to me when I was about four, when she was put tucking me into bed, she said, those that are grateful for what they have, they receive more to be grateful for. Count your blessings as you go to sleep. And my first book, well, not first book, but one of my earlier books was Count Your Blessings. And I dedicated it to my mom because she's the one that told me that. And it was about the healing power of gratitude and love. Gratitude, to me, is a perfectly equilibrated mind. I've been teaching a program called The Breakthrough Experience 1,138 times. And I take people through a series of questions that bring their mind into a perfect equilibrium. And every single time, tears of gratitude come out. And their heart opens, and they want to say, I love you to someone that they do this method on. And so I've been doing that and repeat, reproducing that to you know a couple hundred thousand people, you know, one-on-ones with people in programs. There's no doubt in my mind that gratitude and love is homeostatic. And what's interesting is the executive center in the medial prefrontal cortex, when we're living authentically and we're not exaggerating or minimizing, and we go from our amygdala back into our executive center, we are objective, and objectivity means neutral. And in that state, when we get perfectly equilibrated, our heart opens, we feel grace, and we feel gratitude. And that executive center is also called the gratitude center. So when we're authentic, we are spontaneously grateful for our very presence in this universe. And to me, that's the ultimate mission for individuals to be able to see through the perceptual filters and see mindfully the whole, not the parts and judgments, and get a glimpse of the magnificence of life. And I do everything I can on a daily basis to help people get that. Because then they don't have to be motivated. They don't have to avoid and seek. They don't have to be living in predator and prey mentality. They don't get to be victims of history. They become masters of destiny, and they want to contribute. I always say, if you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you, your day fills up with challenges that don't. And that's distress. But when you fill it with challenges that do, it's inspiring, and you feel meaningful, and you feel fulfilled, and you're making a contribution, and solving people's problems with your skills and talents is absolutely the most fulfilling thing we can do. So I love helping people do that because then they go through life and they, they're not having brawny rares, five regrets of dying. They have their, their appreciation for life. I was talking to Bronnie just a few months ago. We were on Skype. She was in Byron Bay, Australia, and we were chatting. And she says, I love your work. And I said, I love your work. I tell people to go and read your book. She goes, well, I tell people to read yours. She says, because all those regrets that I talk about, if you do your method, there is no regrets. There's gratitude. And there's then you're living by priority. You're making a difference. You're serving people. You're feeling fulfilled. You're grateful. You're perceiving people with a balanced orientation. And you can't say anything except thank you at the end of the day. And to me, at the end of your day, you're going to be asked a simple question. Did you do everything you could with everything you were given in your life? Yeah, I, I, I felt grateful. I, I did it. I, I fulfilled what was deeply meaningful to me and contributed. And, in a way that serves people. That's beautiful. Uh, I do love that book by Bonnie Ware as well. Uh, five, top five regrets of the dying. We'll put it down below uh, the link for that. Gratitude changed my life too. I haven't missed a day. I know you have like a gratitude practice that is 
really inspi- inspirational to me. I haven't missed a day of gratitude. I probably in six years, I probably have you know, notebooks like notebooks of this that are just filled with gratitude and goals every morning, every night before bed, I'm always writing down what I'm grateful for, because, you know, the reticular activation system, part of your brain, whatever you feed it, you see more of. So if you're feeding it the negativity, if you're feeding it all the things that are going wrong, RAS will go to work for you and give you more of what you don't want to work for you. But when you shift and practice gratitude, then you are more grateful. You have said what you think about and think about, you bring about. So how do you practice gratitude on a daily basis? I do it every day. I Believe it or not, I've, I could show you. I've typed your uh, the gratitude to do the interview with you today. It's already in the in the, my my journal. I do it every day. My, my journal is, there's 30 volumes and some of the volumes are 900 pages. So you could add the numbers. There's thousands and thousands of pages of gratitudes that I have. And people say, well, why do you take the time to do it? And I said, do it. You'll find out why. <laughs> because you've now got a document of all the things that's manifested in your life that you're grateful for. And what a great document to look at. And my children will be able to look at it. And my students will look at it. And they, anybody who's ever looked at it just goes, wow, this inspired. They get tears in their eyes. Because your life is so filled with so many things that you can be grateful for if you take the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're on my gratitude list too. Uh, I want to make sure I get to a couple a couple more things. Really quick answers. Three books that you recommend everybody read and then three people that you're studying right now that you recommend we study. Well, when, I, when it comes to books, people ask me, you know, what books do I encourage people to read? I typically tell them to go read Syntopic on volumes one and two. S Y N T O P I C O N, volumes one and two by Mortimer Adler. Mortimer Adler. I personally believe that that, those two volumes are the, the greatest two volumes for a PhD on life that a person can read. What it is is a synthesis, a synchronicity a syncretism of the greatest minds over the last 2,700 years and discussing the greatest and most important ideas a human being can know. Summarized, condensed, and highly documented there. And it's, it's a fantastic book. I really believe a PhD in life is born out of those two books. So those are, those are the two books I recommend. We'll get that. And what about three people that you're you're currently studying that you recommend we study that you're ins- inspiring to you? Well, I've been blessed. I right this minute I was just in a meeting dealing with uh, internet satellite because I live on a ship. I'm living out in I'm right now on the coast of Mexico on a ship right now. And one of the brightest men I, I don't want to give the name out, but he's one of the brightest men that live on this planet. He's patenting four thousand thirty patents. He'd gone beyond, uh, you know, Edison, let's put it that way. He's a multi-billionaire. He does incredible things. I just was with him just a few moments ago. We came out of the meeting together. We're going to probably have uh, dinner tonight. Then a gentleman who is the one that founded gene therapy and CRISPR, and two of his students got Nobel Prize for it. He also lives here with me. And they're, they're not with me, but in the same ship here. And so the three people I would do are all right here, and I'll be having breakfast, lunch, or dinner with them this week. So they're extremely bright individuals, and they're one of them is the, the who found the largest gold mine in history, uh, and he's a, an investor, kind of like on the level of Warren Buffett. 
and the other one is the founder of Gene Therapy, and the other one has probably done more on optics and works for, I mean, his, his, from NASA to Elon Musk, you know, his work goes all over the world. So these are three individuals that I'm, I'm not just studying their books or their literature, I'm breaking bread with. So I'm, I'm trying to learn from them and also share because I like hanging out with me too. Yeah, I'm sure. Amazing. I look forward to being on that ship one day. Dr. John Martini. I want to thank you and acknowledge you for what you've done in my life and all the people I've helped, your fingerprints all, all over that. I'm always humbled when I study your work. I'm always inspired when I study your work. I was looking forward to this conversation, not to put you on a pedestal because I know about that, but you just inspired me so much. And I want to say thank you for coming on my show and sharing your brilliance with me and my audience. I love what you're doing and I look forward to more collaborations with you and more conversations with you. Thank you so much for today. Well, thank you. I appreciate the great questions and you're correct. It was a fantastic uh, uh, interview with great questions. So thank you so much for doing the homework that you did and being engaged in such a, a study of that. So I appreciate that and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I, I told you, the man is brilliant. You're going to want to listen to this again and again and again. First of all, let me acknowledge you right now for reaching this point of the episode, for listening to the entire episode with Dr. John Martini. It shows your commitment, and I want to acknowledge you for your commitment. Please share this episode with somebody you know, with everybody you know. Copy and paste the link. Post it on social media. Tag me on your Instagram stories at the Benazadi at Dr. John Martini. Let's get the message out there and go check out his website, drdmartini.com. Go do the exercises, bring things into balance, write down 50 benefits of what you're dealing with right now. What struggles are you having right now? 50 benefits, 50 negatives, bring it back to homeostasis, work on yourself, find your highest values, get his book starting with the values factor, practice gratitude, Oh my gosh, so many action steps that I'm just so inspired to take. And this came at the right time as we head into 2022. I encourage you to do the exercises we mentioned, get into his work, download his audios. I can't say enough about the brilliance and what this can do to change your life and your relationships and your finances. This is the complete package for what he said, a PhD in life. And we're going to put links and resources for everything mentioned, including the book he recommended, everything you could find in the notes down below, including his website, including his Instagram and his YouTube. And we're also going to put the episode sponsors with the coupon codes down below for you as well. If this episode was valuable to you, please leave the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts right now. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I will see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.